Good evening to you all. How is the sound in the back? Okay. In the last talk that I gave, the talk on dukkha, I started with a little bit about the Buddha's own biography. And I talked about how he was raised in luxury and kind of cosseted or protected from many things in the world that might stimulate the re-arising of his bodhisattva intention and how the father's scheme fell apart and the Buddha at a certain point was really struck by the impact of old age, sickness, and death. And that's the point where he left and began to look for a teacher. He wandered and he wound up finding a teacher who taught him concentration and he practiced concentration and succeeded with it. Actually came to the level of mastery of that particular method. And at that point he told his first teacher, this isn't it. This hasn't done done the job. There have been many beautiful, wonderful states, many powers that have been developed by this practice, but there's still suffering in the mind. And even though his teacher responded by basically saying, you know, please don't leave, please don't leave. You've, you've surpassed me in your practice. You've accomplished more than I. Will you please stay and take over the school? Become my teacher? The Buddha said, no, I've got to continue on. I've got to find what ends suffering. And he went to a second teacher who was also a master of practice and learned from him everything that he had to teach and again quickly progressed and came to the point where he understood everything that was being offered. And he found that it still hadn't released his mind. And even though the teacher asked him to stay and asked him to take over the school again, he said, no, I, this isn't it. I've got to continue. I've got to find my own way. And this led him into a further practice period, which became the period where the Buddha practiced what are called austerities, where he, he, he kind of swung to the side of punishing the body and trying to uh, make the body surrender so that he could become pure spirit or some such idea, letting go of all the pleasant states that he had cultivated in the concentration practices. And it's said that he got to the point where he was actually very close to death, where he had taken this way of viewing things as far as it could go. And he found that his mind still wasn't liberated. And at the point where he was about ready to pass away, he realized that this wasn't working, that this wasn't the path either. And he began to take food. And it was only when he recovered his strength when he sat under the Bodhi tree, the night of his awakening, and turned the power of his altruistically oriented, bright, concentrated mind towards the question of what causes suffering and how it can be released, that he really had his breakthrough. He really became what we now call the awakened one, the Buddha. When he saw what causes and conditions go into the creation of suffering and what causes and conditions can incline the mind to release the craving that flows from delusion. So it was really in this seeing into causation, this deep inquiry into what is happening and what follows upon this kind of way of relating to experience and what follows upon a wiser way of relating to immediate experience that the Buddha found his own way, his own way of liberation. He came to understand the conditional nature of arising. The teachings on dependent origination, 
as well as the teachings on the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, are all part of his explanation of how things work together. These were all the fruits of his own direct investigation into the truth of things. And when I say into the truth of things, I mean his direct investigation into his own immediate experience, as well as his insights into the experience of others, which reinforced his own clear seeing into the fathom-long body and its workings. When I talked at another talk about the five spiritual faculties, I mentioned that faith was one of these. And in fact, faith is the very first of these. And sadha, sadha, the Pali word for faith, is closely allied with confidence and trust. So the word itself is translated as faith, but it has a different twist from faith as we often understand it in English. In English, for instance, we might have associations that faith would be something like the Apostles' Creed, right? Some sort of statement that you would make about what you, what you believe, um, you know, what you've been taught as part of your own religious heritage. And, and, um, but it's not like that in Buddhism. Rather, in Buddhism, faith is seen as an essential and important beginning step in exploring the truth claims of the Buddha. And it's understood that the kind of faith and the amount of faith that you need at the beginning is enough confidence in the direction of the Buddha's path to run your own experiment, to put the teachings of the Four Noble Truths into practice and to see what happens then. So just in the same way that the Buddha studied himself with authoritative teachers, but ultimately measured their systems by his own direct experience, we're encouraged to test the Buddha's truth claims in the library or laboratory of our own hearts and minds. So this encouragement to what's called investigation is a fundamental part of the Buddhist path. To liberate our own hearts and minds, we need to see things for ourselves and not just rely upon the words of another, even the words of a great teacher like the Buddha. So the understanding is that it's wisdom that actually liberates the mind and that this wisdom arises from wise investigation. So this quality of investigation is a very important one. For those of you who know the teaching on the seven factors of awakening, you probably will know that investigation is the second factor. So the first, of course, is mindfulness. In insight meditation, the understanding is that mindfulness is foundational. And then these other factors uh, come online once that basic capacity for mindfulness is established. So investigation is the second factor which inclines the mind towards insight, following behind sati. So in a certain kind of way, you could actually say that investigation is made possible by mindfulness. Or you could say in the context of mindfulness meditation, investigation is what mindfulness supports and how mindfulness is applied. So this investigation is what mindfulness does with what it contacts. It illuminates the object, the meditation object, allowing it to be recognized and known in its specifics in real time. So investigation is sometimes called investigation of states. So that means states of the body and the mind. 
meaning the mind turning towards its own experience with curiosity and being receptive to specific manifestations. So if you were going to say, well, what, what kind of things is an investigative mind looking at or doing? What is investigation doing? You'd say there, there might be the arising of interest or questions around things like this. What is this experience? Going to the question of perception or sanya, what is, what is this experience? What is it? There might be uh, an investigation about what the vedana or the feeling tone of experience is. There could be investigation of sensations in the body. What does this state feel like in the body? What sensations are present now? Is there a hindrance? Which one? What does it feel like? Are there wholesome states? Which ones? What do they feel like? What's the attitude of mind towards this immediate experience? As this predominant experience is actually attended to with mindfulness and investigation, does it change? Does it get stronger? Does it get weaker? Does it turn into something else seemingly? Does it pass away? So if we were to go to the language of the Satipatthana Sutta, we would get some clues or cues about how the mind can be present with experience that will lead on to develop this capacity for investigation. So if we're talking about some of the language that's used, for instance, in the Satipatthana about the third foundation of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of the mind, The language is, here one knows a lustful mind to be lustful and a mind without lust to be without lust. One knows an angry mind to be angry and a mind without anger to be without anger. One knows a deluded mind to be deluded and a mind without delusion to be without delusion. One knows a contracted mind to be contracted and a distracted mind to be distracted. So this directs us to specific uh, and a kind of metacognition, M-E-T-A, although there'll probably be M-E-T-T-A in there too if if, uh, wise intention is in play. But basically what's being said is we're encouraged to know in real time whether greed, aversion, or delusion are present or absent in the mind. And I say this is a a metacognition, M-E-T-A, cognition, because it directly inquires whether, whether suffering or the causes of suffering are in operation right now. So notice the language that's being used. So we're not being asked to notice whether we are an angry person or where all that anger came from. Right? We're just being asked whether uh, X, Y, and Z are the case right now, right? Is there anger in the mind now? Or is there not anger in the mind now? Is the mind contracted right now? Or is the mind not contracted right now? Is the mind distracted right now? Or is the mind not distracted? So this is a little bit like relating to experience like a weather forecast, right? Is it raining now? Is the sun out? Is the angry mind out? Is it not? When we attend to angry mind, then what happens? So there's a kind of matter of factness in this inquiry. Whether there's anger or whether there isn't anger are equally acceptable observations. So the point isn't which one there is. The point is that you're connected enough to the experience to be able to say. So you're investigative in respect to this axis of anger or not anger in this particular case. So there's no story attached to the report. It's more like a just answer in the question. So is this the case or is this not the case? What is the case in real time? And 
this very matter-of-fact way of noticing experience and then recognizing that's what the practice is all about is quite counterintuitive. I can remember the very first exposure that I had to meditation on this long weekend retreat um, with Stephen Levine and uh, Joel Levy was there as the assistant teacher and he was given most of the meditation instructions. And I can remember how he gave the meditation instructions because, because he, he would say something like, you can be with the breath, notice the breath, the sensations of the breath. Other things may arise in the mind. Oh, frustration, of course. You can be with hearing, hearing, be present with hearing. Oh, anger, of course, anger, of course. And at first I thought, what's this of course stuff? <laughs> like, what is, what is being said here with the of course? Tagline to everything, especially to things that I kind of assumed that you wouldn't want to be happening. Because, like, this was meditation, right? It was supposed to calm your mind and... You know, be very soothing and everything. You know, so but they they kept uh, attaching this, of course, to the notice noticing of things that seem to be screw ups. You know, like anger. But it was very clarifying uh, that first set of instructions and very skillful. I uh, now realize. Because it clarified to me that we were supposed to just say and acknowledge and notice and note what was being known in real time. And that it was okay for things to be the way that they actually were. Which seemed really kind of weird, but it was clear. And of course this is a a very counterintuitive instruction because it goes against our assumptions and our preferences. Because actually... As long as we're acknowledging, of course, what's there, we would have to acknowledge that we would really rather have some things than others. Right? But with the meditation instructions, we're being asked to not let our preferences confuse our recognition of what's actually present. To not let our preferences confuse our recognition of what's actually present. So we're going for plainly and continually acknowledging what's happening now, which might be the presence of a preference. And we're being coached about how to approach it with investigative interest. Investigative interest of real-time experience. So you could say that this investigation is the process where mindfulness further discerns the specifics of what's being experienced. So you may have noticed in some of your practice meetings with teachers being asked about the particulars of what is being known and what you're talking about happening in your practice. Oh, and when that arose, was what was the Vedana, right? When that arose and you attended to that set of sensations in the body, how, how would you describe them? Did they have a center? Did they get stronger when you knew them? Did they move? Right? These are all kind of coaching questions that can come up in the practice meetings that are doing a couple things. One is helping you to describe your experience within a practice or a dharmic framework. And the other piece is helping to to coach you to be able to land in that investigative uh, framework when you're on the cushion or doing your walking practice or your walking around practice in relationship to what arises for you in real time. 
So, and it also allows a teacher to get an idea about whether the relationship that you're having with experience actually is a, a mindful relationship or not. So we all know that there's a certain kind of way in which awareness can be present, but the mind isn't actually mindful in relationship to what is happening. You know, if we consider that mindfulness it is receptive and connected and relatively free from greed, hatred, and delusion, and that its role is to bring things into view and to illuminate what is known and recognized, you see that there has to be mindfulness established before there can be really be investigation. But the two feed back upon each other and are mutually supporting, mutually reinforcing. So investigation, when investigation is going on, there's a few questions that investigation poses. There is the what is happening, what is happening now, and there's the how is it happening. So if you realize that investigation is the process by which discernment is cultivated and established, and is the process by which mindfulness illuminates the particular specific aspects of individual experiences, and how experiences condition each other, you start to realize this quality of investigation is the same one that the Buddha applied in his own process of awakening. And in a certain kind of way, this whole process of doing insight meditation is us running a guided experiment through the same terrain that the Buddha himself followed in the process of learning to see the conditioned nature of things and how the mind can release itself. So let me talk a little bit about the third foundation of mindfulness and uh, investigation there, because that's kind of a tricky area, the third foundation of mindfulness. So. In the third foundation, there are things like mental arisings, like thoughts and emotions and memories and intentions and perceptions. These arise and are known and held in practice. When I say held in practice, there's a pointing to these being recognized in real time as they arise and as they're predominant. And these, excuse me, being seen as events, they're being seen as events in real time and are being worked with in the same matter-of-fact way as a body sensation or a sound is. They arise, they manifest, they pass away. Then something else arises, manifests, and passes away. All experiences are part of this flow of impermanent objects being known in and as the mind stream. So that's the theory, that the, the things that come up at the mind door are treated the same way that you would relate to a body sensation or the, the sensations of the breath or a sound. But of course, the seed of a lot of our personal suffering is really in the mind and in relationship to mind experiences. And there are certainly difficult and unwanted states that can arise forms of greed, aversion, and delusion that are not only generally unpleasant in themselves, but they're often difficult to see with mindfulness. Because this is a place where identity is created, personal narrative arises intertwined with suffering and identification. I I can remember a few years ago I was invited to help teach a young people's retreat that was going to take place over New Year's Eve. At first I was really surprised that I was asked to do this because 
these were young people who were like high school age, you know, maybe down to 14 or something, maybe up to, yeah, end of high school. So a different group than I usually hang out with. Okay, but they asked me. So, you know, part of my Dharma commitment is, okay, anytime I get asked to do any kind of teaching by people I, I respect and, and I think they're serious, I'll always say yes the first time, just as part of my investigation, my kind of stretch. And it was a really interesting experience because, like, where do you start in offering the Dharma to 14-year-olds? And, and I can remember, okay, how can I find my way in? How can I find my way in? At one point I decided, okay, I'm going to put it out there. This may not make any sense to them at this point, but maybe at some point later in their life, you know, some kind of bell will go off and they're like, I think that lady said that. <laughs> that old lady, I think that. So I was like, we had a little dialogue right, right before lunch. And I said to them, do you think you're your thoughts? Do you think you're your thoughts? And I can remember this, this one girl's face. It just like completely distorted. She just went, <laughs> like, what the, are you saying? Are you your thoughts? Well, yeah, of course I'm my thoughts. Of course I'm my thoughts. But you know, before we get educated, don't we all think we're our thoughts? And even sometimes when we think we're educated, sometimes we still think we're our thoughts. I, I can remember the first time uh, I was in an environment where somebody said something about my story. and. You know, and there was a suggestion there that there might be a different way to look at things, to experience things, or to hold things. And I was like, what are they talking about? My story? Well, yeah, it's my life. Of course it's my story. Right? You can see like that really, the close intertwining of the self-sense and identification with thoughts and emotions and personal narrative, personal interpretation, personal history, right there, right in the, no capacity to like experience it as an event in real time. So, you know, our self-sense is very bound up with events at the mind door. Even though the Buddha coaches us in the teachings on the five aggregates that we shouldn't consider the arising and passing away of conditioned things to be me or mine or what I am. So the Buddha encourages us to practice at the mind door in the same way that we practice with the other three foundations of mindfulness in the Satipatthana put it into the Dharma deconstruction process in the same kind of way. He encourages us not to attach an identity view to these things, not to plaster a self-sense on them or try to own them. But, you know, this is not organic to us. You know, we're a lot like that girls, like, what? What? Well, sometimes we can kind of see it's just a thought, but a lot of the time it's me. It's me we're talking about. But, you know, (laughs) can't let go of me. But, you know, the Buddha had some radical ideas. He really did. So he said it's possible to use existing mindfulness in a certain way to free the mind from the suffering that's bound up in the fixed 
self-view and other forms of dukkha. He says it's possible to use the mind to know the workings of the heart-mind and to free the mind through this clear seeing and the understanding that arises from it. So this mirror-like capacity that we have, this mindfulness, when skillfully oriented towards our immediate experience and held within the, the Buddha's framework of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and investigation, shows us, with this very material that arises in the heart and mind, how suffering is created and thus how it can be released. So it's in learning to observe this arising and passing away process that we call the self, that we come to understand it as it is and stop picking it up by the suffering end. And you know, this is really the point of meditation practice, to encourage a kind of continual mindfulness of our present tense experience, allowing the body and mind to to become transparent and aware of its own workings. And in the process, it seems that the body-mind system purifies the obstructions which are and which cause suffering through this sustained process of observation with mindfulness and investigation. Sounds too good to be true, but it seems to be the case. So I want to talk about investigation and what it's meant by in the Buddhist system and juxtapose it to what we often use to investigate third foundation content in other aspects of our life. So the third foundation I said was involves things like the self-sense, thoughts, emotions, memories, all the rest of it. Things that are very much packaged along with this sense of me or I. Let's talk about the difference between mindfulness meditation and Western psychotherapy. Because when I am talking about the mind getting to know its own workings, learning to observe its own processes, it can sound a little bit like psychotherapy. So let's do a poll now. Let's poll the Sangha. How many of us have done at least some psychotherapy? Okay, and the rest of you are either really good or really bad. (laughs) So, you you know, you'll notice most of the, the Dharma teachers have done at least some of that. Maybe not as much as we should, but at least some has been done. And, you know, there's some overlaps between mindfulness uh, or Vipassana meditation and Western therapy. And there, of course, is increasing use of of, uh, mindfulness in certain forms of psychotherapy now, like, you know, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and and things like that. Um, There are some uh, fundamental differences in goals, views, and practice. And so even though I know I'm going to be grossly generalizing, I'm going to do it anyway, okay? So those of you who are psychotherapists, please don't worry. I'm not delegitimizing what you do in any way. So here's some features that I perceive to be the case with Vipassana practice. Present tense orientation. So the question asked is, what is present versus where did it come from? Second point for Vipassana. Investigation is of the presently arising experience. So you generally don't dig under and into things to find out why it's present. Remember I said earlier, weather report, what's happening 
third point, it's matter of fact. What is present is what is attended to. Things are generally not interpreted or sourced in a particular personal history or narrative. Though, of course, that can arise spontaneously as a present tense experience. That feeling like, oh, I know where this comes from. That's from, yeah, that time, right? But we're not, like, actively trying to dig it. Thoughts and emotions and everything else are related to as events as they happen. Related to as events as they happen. The goal of the practice is the ending of generic suffering caused by delusion which results in craving. So in a certain kind of sense, one size fits all. Letting go of craving in order to end suffering is what the point is. Okay, so the description of the task, again going to the Satipatthana Sutta, in this way in regard to the mind, one abides contemplating the mind internally, externally, internally and externally. One abides contemplating the nature of arising, of passing away, of both arising and passing away in regard to the mind. Mindfulness that there is a mind or a mind event is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness, and one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. Okay, so features of psychotherapy, as I understand it. The goal is the relief or the healing of personal, specific suffering that is related to me. My suffering. My particular dukkha. Meaning is sought in understanding the unique personal causes of our conditioned patterns of suffering. Like how did this come about? And with that, a looking to the past for insight or explanation about why we are as we are. So part of this is the story or personal narrative is a primary place of exploration. What's happened in our life before now? How does that tie into or cause the present emotion or thought or belief or suffering? So experiences reviewed, analyzed, reworked, revised, reframed, you know, figuring it out in order to understand it, in order to release it. So those are two overlapping but quite different approaches to address dukkha dukkha, right? One is generic, the Buddhist path, generic, and the other is very specific and personal. They both use mindfulness, but the goals are different. So the main takeaway is in what we're doing here and what we're doing on the cushion, it's good to keep those two things separate in your mind, right? So that when things arise for you in practice that are in this third foundation practice field, you know which set of instructions to be applying in investigation of those particular states and experiences. Because when you get them crisscrossed, It gets quite confusing, as you may have noticed. Now, none of this is to say that psychological insight doesn't arise on retreat, because it does, and sometimes it arises in a very deep and profound way, even with deep and profound releases in terms of holdings in the body and suffering in the mind. It's just that we're not going looking for it. It almost like uh, offers itself up as a particular treasure that opens up when we're not looking for it. The best stuff comes when you're not looking for it. So let me just briefly go over some examples of investigation and specific 
circumstances to give you some examples of how you might investigate or hold an investigative relationship with some run-of-the-mill practice arisings. Okay, say you have a situation where you're trying to focus on the breath in order to support calmness and stability. So the mind keeps leaving the breath and going to thinking. So you yank it back, but it soon returns to thinking. So this is a scenario that's happening. So version one about how you could investigate this. When you realize the mind has wandered from the preferred object, you could ask, well, what state is actually, or experience is actually present now? Is it anger? Is it frustration? Is it craving? Is it uh, amusement? So what's happening right then when awareness returns? You could investigate the present state that's right there when awareness returns after sliding off the breath into something else before trying to go back to the breath. So if there's a strong emotional state there, there'll be body sensations present. So what body sensations are present when the mind keeps sliding off the breath into something else? Are they pleasant or are they unpleasant? And as you feed them, do they get stronger or do they get weaker or do they change to something else? Do they end? So in most cases, if there's a strong hindrance present and it's not recognized and uh, investigated, you won't be able to establish mindful connection with another object because it's there in the field, it's there in the foreground almost as a lens. So in that case, you would be turning towards another thing with a lens of the hindrance in place i.e. like back to the breath with an angry mind, so the mind won't actually take the object. So you'll be going through this cycle of trying to be with the breath and sliding off again and again, most likely. So the hindrances generally have to be cleared first by recognizing and investigating them. Investigation of states. So how would you investigate this being with the breath and you're repeatedly sliding off? Version two, when you become aware of being lost repeatedly in thinking, investigate what kind of thinking. Is it like planning? Is it fantasizing? Is it obsessing? Is it worrying? Is it unpleasant? Is it pleasant? Is it neither? Is there an emotion bound up in the thoughts? Which one? Are there sensations in in the body that are part of that emotional resonance? What sensations are they and where? What's the attitude of the mind towards this experience as it's happening in real time? Is there clinging? Is there craving? Is there aversion? Is there self-judgment? Is there a view this experience is not legitimate or is wrong in some kind of way? So these are just more slightly more sophisticated versions of the weather report and, and of the meditation instruction tagline, of course. Right? This is the mind taking mindfulness and using mindfulness, turning it towards immediate experience and noticing particularities as they reveal themselves, not need, needing to dig around underneath it or try to find more, but just inclining the mind to recognize within this kind of framework of investigation. So here's another scenario. There's a painful sensation in the knees. You start to worry that if this doesn't go away, you won't be able to practice. Your plans for the retreat will be ruined and your money wasted. Panic arises at the thought of failing. Anybody had any analogous experience here, whether an experience of mind or body? So how would you investigate this? Version one. You would notice the painful sensation in the knees. 
soften around the pain and with goodwill and care, explore exactly what the sensations are. Okay, this is where you see that Dharma practice is counterintuitive, right? Because for the uh, untrained worldling who is not practicing Vipassana practice, the good practice would be to figure out how to get the hell to stop. So you go into your teacher practice meetings, you say something like, I've got this pain in my back, da-da-da-da-da, and the teacher doesn't go, oh, you poor baby. (laughs) Teacher goes, what's it like? (laughs) Is it stabbing? (laughs) Right? I mean, this is, okay. Counterintuitive. Okay. So you explore exactly what the sensations are. Are they hot? Are they cold? Are they throbbing or needle-like? Does it have a center? As you attend to the pain, is there fear or aggression in the mind towards the experience? Is there a view you need to conquer this or to gut it out in order to succeed? As you explore this experience of pain, does it change? Does it get stronger? Does it get weaker? Is the attention being given still mindfulness, receptive and interested? Or is there aversion in the attending to things? So you could allow yourself to redirect awareness or move before things become unbearable or damaging. You'll be glad to know that there is that escape hatch in the instructions, <laughs> unbearable or damaging. <laughs> yeah, well, that's going too far. So when you do so, what changes in the physical sensations? What changes in the mind? Okay, variation number two, same intense pain in the knees. There are painful sensations in the knees. You move in reaction when panic arises at the thought of failure. Then you notice there's still some aching in the knees, but it's lessened. You're embarrassed you moved, and you self-judge as being a wimp. Okay. So the mind is just doing this. It's doing it all on its own, and it's noticing. The mind is noticing. You feel the body sensations of embarrassment and investigate them with mindfulness. There's heat spreading to the face. There's recognition of the state of embarrassment and feeling it's unpleasant. The heat starts to subside and changes from an unpleasant sensation to something more neutral. As the knee sensations change, you notice pain is passing away. You investigate the feeling of relief and realize this relief is both physical and mental. You notice the mind grab hold of the desire that the knee pain has gone for good. You recognize this is desire, which is a hindrance if not seen with mindfulness. Because you see it clearly and do not get lost in the desire or invest it in coming true, you are in a mindful investigative relationship with it. So you can see there's mindful investigation present when A, there's mindfulness, which recognizes what's happening in real time and the mind turns towards what's happening with an interest in discerning what unfolds as it's experienced. So it's not trying to do anything about or to what's known in order to secure a preferred version. But remember, if it's damaging or unbearable, you can move. So, But this is a way of uh, attending that's intimate and connecting and allowing. It doesn't have an, any agenda in relationship to what's happening except to learn how to be wise and skillful in relationship to whatever is being experienced. So let me give you an example of a more <clears throat> subtle kind of experience. Feeling bored. I don't suppose that's come up at all. Okay, here's the scenario. Nothing is happening. (laughs) Uh, The Buddha says you could cut it off 
if you want to, but nevertheless, for the moment, it seems like nothing is happening. Okay, nothing is happening. I'm so bored. My practice has been the same for 20 years. Nothing is improving. (laughs) Except that resolve is ripening. (laughs) Those paramis are getting getting, uh, developed. Okay, so let's talk about boredom. So boredom is a state which sometimes arises when there is a lack of connection or satisfaction with available objects. So this discontent can be investigated as a hindrance and or as the threshold of an insight. So what hindrance is most prominent? Is it wanting something pleasant? It is, is it aversion to something? Is there a self-view present and what is the Vedana there? Is there doubt present? Is there sloth and torpor? Restlessness and worry? So here's a challenge. What are the body sensations of boredom? So are they pleasant or are they unpleasant? And as you investigate boredom, What happens to it? Does it go away? Does it strengthen? Does it seemingly turn into something else? When boredom is present, what is the level of energy in the body? The level of energy in the mind? What's the attitude of the mind towards the process of meditation, towards the environment, towards reality? Is there a lack of satisfaction in the objects being known? Do you experience the beginning, the middle, or the end of things? Can you tell? Do you want things to be different? Do you want something more to be present than actually is? So boredom is actually quite interesting because it can arise under very different circumstances. One is when attention is not being fully given. So one of the secrets to practice is things get interesting when attention is offered to them not the other way around. (laughs) So one is when attention is not being fully given. The second is when the Vedana present is actually more on the neutral end of the spectrum and it's not being recognized as the subtle experience that it actually is. There is something happening, but the mind is not connecting with it. And third, when the mind starts to realize there's nothing inherently satisfying about any of the conditioned things that it's knowing, i.e. it's actually seeing, starting to see dukkha. But in all of these cases, reestablishing a commitment to close attention is the remedy. So, you know, this this quality of investigation is really powerful. You can see, you, you can use these ideas or uh, way of relating to experience with meditation objects or sensory experiences that are very uh, strong, very visible, uh, kind of gross if you want to put it that way, you know, like the, the sound of the the trucks tearing up the road out there, or you can use the same kind of inclination of mind to investigate things that are present in in real time that are actually very subtle, difficult to know sometimes, difficult to even name. And yet that, that same process of something being difficult to know, difficult to name, subtle, is an experience of a something. It's the experience of subtlety. It's not a non-experience. It's just not as vivid as other things that we might know. And in a certain kind of way, this process is all a development of capacity of mind, both towards greater and greater range in connecting with experience, broader and broader range of things, but also increasing uh, depth in knowing what is actually present, including the refinement of the mind towards being able to perceive 
more and more subtle kinds of things. But interestingly enough, the way in, the way that mind learns how to do that, is just by attending to what the predominant foreground experience is in a consistent kind of way, and then it all starts to move in the direction of this kind of increase of capacity for clear seeing and and working with a wider and wider range of things. If you you remember what relationship you're being coached to have in regard to what you're knowing. So I could go go on, but we're we're at the end of a reasonable length Dharma talk. So just to say, you know, in order for the mind to wake up to liberate itself from discretionary human suffering, there's a need to learn discernment. So in order to come into seeing for yourself, experientially, what wise and harmonious relationship is with things, we need to develop the capacity to, to uh, perceive the notes, if you want to put it that way, of how things are sounding. So this means close in a kind of non-reactive connection to the tone of things. So it's an interesting thing because a mind that is busy being present with experience and investigating it in real time has this capacity to come into non-resistant harmony with experience, right? Because the energy that formerly would be taken up in reactivity to what is happening is instead going to the knowing of it, the interested knowing of it. There's not enough left over to rebound off it or to reject it when the mind is closely working in that kind of way. So this is, this is the way in. So you could call this a kind of holy curiosity. How fantastic that just by learning to attend in a sustained kind of way to what we know in real time, that the mind's many delusions begin to unbind themselves without needing to go through the oversight of our usually dominant um, conceptualization mechanism. This is all a way of moving that really dominant way of function to the side and including it when it arises as part of the foreground or predominant experience as part of the field of knowing. But to give ourselves uh, the opportunity to develop this, what is usually a a subdominant way of knowing things giving ourselves the opportunity to really work directly there with this real-time, very simple way of knowing and being present to things. So this is your opportunity to learn how to do this, to learn how to do what the Buddha himself learned how to do, and to run your own experiment in seeing whether the truth claims that he makes in the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path are actually so. But you will will know it through your own direct experience, which is the most reliable kind of way. So I would really wish that for you. May the merit of the practice that we've done be a cause and condition for our own awakening and that of all beings.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.